Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm back after one episode off to rejoin my fellow co-host, Joel Wolfont. What up, Cash? I missed you, man. It's been uh, been a long week with well, no... Uh... Di- didn't sound like you missed me when you told James Herbert that I have small shoes to fill. But uh, no, it was. A, it, I'll, I'll say it's a good episode. I ended up reading James's piece. I hadn't read it actually um, before I listened to your episode with him, went back and read it after that. It was a great piece. The episode was great. Good uh, good hoops talk about the tall ball revolution. Good stuff all around, but I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to have you back. I hope you know it's all love. Oh, and, I know. I, know. I, you know, I, got, I got to keep the friendly rivalry going in some form or fashion. We got to so. do it. We got to do it. And I'm sure um, things will come up today where we will disagree as well. Because that's what we do here. Let's hope. We're going to spend the majority of today's episode talking about is your Sacramento Kings. That's right. But we have to start, and maybe some people will roll their eyes because we've talked a lot about the Brooklyn Nets already to start the season, but how can you not if you cover the NBA or you follow the NBA, even casually, to be honest? I'm going to talk about a few things related to the Nets before we dive into all things Kings. First, one of the things that made headlines this week was a certain Kevin Durant comment to Chris Haynes. So Kevin Durant does a couple... Uh, exclusive one-on-ones earlier this week, one with Chris Haynes, one with Mark Spears, I believe. The one with Chris Haynes gets a lot of the headlines and publicity for one very specific line or quote. Now, I will say, if you read the entire interview, uh, I thought it was pretty forthcoming from KD. I thought it was very... Honest? Yeah, it was very honest. I will say that. And I will also say, I really liked... Like, there was one quote, it's towards the end... But he talks about his legacy and he says his legacy is predicated on what Cam Thomas is learning from me and what he'll take away to help him by the time he's in his 10th year. That's my legacy. What I did with Andre Roberson, the confidence I helped him build when he was in the league. That's my legacy. Being able to play with Russell Westbrook, Steph Curry and Kyrie and still be me. That's my legacy. So like that line to me was great. And that's the kind of thing I think is awesome. Um, I think, again, I I think it's just KD being honest. I think it's a cool way to look at your career when you are uh, a great at the level of Kevin Durant is. And I will say, I also agree with him for like all of the things we do clown KD about when it comes to like that, maybe how he interacts with social media or certain things with the media in general. The one thing I'll give him, and I agree with this line is that like, whether it was beside Russell Westbrook, Steph Curry, or now Kyrie Irving, he ha- KD has been KD through it all. I mean, like even when he went to the Warriors and everyone got on him then for taking the easy way out or whatever people wanted to say. And he went and played beside, at the time, the two-time reigning MVP in Steph Curry, who had just completely warped the way we think about basketball because of what he was doing in, in the best way possible. Kevin Durant went there and was still Kevin Durant and ended up winning two finals MVPs. And I don't mean he was just Kevin Durant and that he was the man. It's the way he still went about his business on the court, the way, yeah, like, aesthetically it might have looked a little different around him but the way he went about getting his shots the way he went about closing games like all those things look at him now man he's playing next to Yuta Watanabe adapting his game to fit next to another superstar (laughs) you know what the funny thing is even if you weren't talking about Yuta if you were just talking about anyone else on that team and saying well look at him now having to do what he's doing beside those guys I I was gonna say yeah and Kevin Durant will be the first to tell you that because the line that was picked up the most from this story, the one that dominated headlines in social media, and understandably so, I will say, is when he says to Chris Haynes, look at our starting lineup. Edmund Sumner, 
Royce O'Neal, Joe Harris, Claxton, and me. It's not disrespect, but what are you expecting from that group? You expect us to win because I'm out there? It's not disrespect, Cash. I mean, he said it, so it can't be disrespect. Yeah, because everyone knows. And whenever you start a line, no disrespect, but the the last thing that's going to come out is disrespect. In fairness, I think he was getting to the point, and he does actually go on to explain that he's like enjoying having to elevate this team and it's a different kind of role for him now and like... I, I don't think it was meant as disrespectful as it came out. I and, love well, dragging these scrubs right, every single that's night. Right. But what I was going to say, I, I don't think he necessarily meant it as disrespectful as it came out. And I will also say that I appreciate his candidness and 100% from a media perspective, you want that. So like, let me be clear. I like Kevin Durant being this honest, but there's a reason players usually aren't this honest with that stuff. And it's because it is a tough look in the locker room among the group of players you have to spend your season with, your professional time with. Like KD, you're a 15-year vet, an all-time great, who by this point should know better. So unfortunately, you're not getting the benefit of the doubt from me, or I don't think from any of us on this one. Like, Kudos to an honest interview, but man, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, I mean, who knows how, how something like that gets received, right? There's really, I don't have that kind of insight, and I guess there's no point really in speculating about how his teammates might feel right. about it, but I know how I would feel about it if I was in that situation, even if in my heart of hearts I knew it to be true. Yeah, like imagine, imagine I did a guest spot somewhere and they asked me about Pal the Rock and I said, it's me and Joe Wolfrod. Joe Wolfrod. Joe Wolfrod, as one of our uh, listeners likes to refer to him. I get a record with Joe Wolfrod, how good you want this podcast to be. I have a feeling if I said that, it'd be a little awkward the next time we recorded together. Well, I mean, here we are talking after I told my guest last week that he had small shoes to fill, and we seem to be doing fine. So, look, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not a great look, but I also do think taking that one quote, which was bound to happen, obviously, and like that being aggregated and that being the thing that the vast majority of people are going to see from that interview and like pretty much nothing else, right? Like the the majority of people are just going to see that and they're not going to read the entire thing, which I think is a shame uh, because I do think there was a lot of really good stuff that was candid in ways that weren't damaging to the players on his team. And that that's Katie's fault, right? Like you throw something like that out there. And if you don't recognize that that's the thing that's going to get picked up on and harped on, then I don't know, like you said, he's a 15-year vet, right? He's been in this business long enough to understand how this works. And you don't have to like it, but you kind of do have to know at this point that exactly that's what's going to happen. So just felt like something that he probably didn't need to say. <laughs> uh, but also maybe just a good opportunity for us to step back and appreciate what Katie is actually doing this season. Because this dude has been unbelievable. Like yeah. amid all of the the circus going on in Brooklyn and everything going on on and off the court that has made it just one of the most depressing situations in the NBA so far this season for all of that. Katie has brought it like every single night. And 
he's not wrong when he said he's seeing so much defensive attention and having to find new ways to navigate it every night. And he's still managing to score in ultra efficient fashion and also defend his ass off. Like I I've been so impressed with his help defense this season and his ability to alternately be a one-on-one defender, tackle assignments on the perimeter, but probably more than that, just to be a, like a backline rotator who's being really their last line of defense in a lot of cases, right? Like they're uh, obviously Claxton has been good in that regard too, but I, I feel like KD has maybe been their best rim protector. And, yep. um, you know, he's, he's not like the primary rim protector. A lot of the time it's like secondary rim protection that he's providing, but his ability to do that is what allows the Nets to bring Claxton up super high and pick and roll and have him switch out on the perimeter, right? Like they wouldn't be able to do that and actually succeed doing that if they didn't have KD behind him doing what he's been able to do as a weak side helper so far this season. So I've kind of been blown away by what he's been able to do at his age with the injury that he has in the rear view and everything else going on around him. Like, and this is why we were saying coming into the season that we just didn't foresee a situation where KD would ever hold out. And the rest of this interview really gets at that. I mean, he, he comes out and says how much he's enjoying this because while he was sitting out with the Achilles injury and the pandemic was going on, he was like, I didn't know if I was going to play again. And he's not taking this for granted and he's relishing it. And you can kind of see that when you watch him play, even when things aren't going super well for the Nets. So I, I tip my hat to him. I really do. I, I think it's been one of the most impressive individual performances in the league so far this season. As Kevin Durant once famously said, Y'all know who I am. I'm Kevin Durant. (laughs) With Durant just playing out of his mind, the Nets have slowly, quietly started to kind of figure things out under Jacques Vaughn. And they're playing together. They're defending well. They're playing with a great spirit about them. So it's really, really unfortunate that that's all about to come to an end. With Kyrie Irving set to come back into the mix. But in all seriousness, there's a couple ways you can look at this. You can look at it as the Nash slash Vaughn splits and say, this was the Steve Nash Nets. This is the Jacques Vaughn Nets. And so them doing this without Kyrie, like it's not about Kyrie. It's about the fact that, you know, new coach, new vibe, all that. But I'm sorry, yeah. you also to, have to, to lo- hear KD tell it. It's about the new coach apparently implementing more closeout drills. Right, and exactly. And harder practices. More, yeah, better practices or like more practice time. When if you watch the Nets and you watch film from pr- the pre-Nash firing and the post-Nash firing with Vaunting over, the schemes, the offensive sets, they're not really doing much different. Okay? So when you look at on the court, the biggest difference is the absence of Kyrie Irving now. Harris and Curry being in the lineup more consistently is big, obviously. Durant continuing to play well, but he was playing well earlier in the season too. Ben Simmons starting to come on. Just had his best game as a net. His best game in literally, what, you know, a year and three quarters, a year and a half in a big win at Portland that included him making three of four clutch free throws late in the game as well after being intentionally fouled by Portland. Simmons had actually been starting to kind of percolate for a few games, I'd say. And even when they got their asses kicked in Sacramento by whatever it was, 40 points, he, I thought, actually played not as bad as, you know, a player 
on the losing team with that scoreline would suggest. And he actually played pretty well in garbage time. Again, just these little signs that he was starting to come to life. And then best game he's had in a long time in the win against Portland. So things are going well for the Nets outside of just Kyrie's not there. And I will also add the schedule has been much easier. These eight games versus the first eight games. But here are the facts and the numbers. First eight games of the season with Kyrie Irving in the lineup and coached by Steve Nash, the Nets went two and six with the worst defense in the league, allowing 118.3 points per 100 possessions. In eight games since then, with Kyrie out of the lineup and with Jacques Vaughn coaching, they are five and three with the second ranked defense at 106.3 points per 100 possessions. Now, do you know how outrageously good your defense has to be to be number two in a small sample, like an eight game sample, when one of those eight games saw you give up 153 points. Like, you know how good your defense had to have been in the other seven games for that to be the case? So I ask you, Joe Wolfund, yeah. <clears throat> from what you've seen, since it doesn't look to me like they're really doing much differently, how much of this is a coaching change, maybe just breathing a bit of life? It could even just be guys playing hard. Like, you know, sometimes a coaching change happens and guys just play harder or maybe they're more together, whatever it is. And how much of it is do you think they don't have Kyrie out there and it's a lot easier to be a good defensive team when Kyrie Irving is not playing 35 minutes a night? I think it's a bit of both. I think ultimately, I you know, on balance, yes, for sure it's going to hurt the defense. I don't think I believe that they're actually a worse team on balance with Kyrie than without him. But... I think you can definitely see how without him, they can just put more size on the floor. And I think it's a real credit to KD that he has been able to sort of make it work offensively as the lone initiator, like, you know, high volume shot creator on the team because his ability to do that means they can throw out lineups with, you know, say like Claxton, KD, Joe Harris, Simmons, although they really haven't been playing Simmons and Claxton together that much. I actually feel like that's a big part of the reason why we're starting to see Simmons play better. But, yeah, um, you know, Utah, like they can throw bigger lineups out there on the floor. And that's, to me, a big part of what's turned their defense around. I also just didn't think they were actually as bad as they were playing early in the season either. Like you mentioned, the schedule was tough. Obviously there were a lot of distractions and I never thought they were that bad. So I think, you know, look, is Kyrie going to come back and be on his, I hate, I I hate to sound like paternalistic or patronizing when I say stuff like this, but like, is Kyrie going to come back and be on his quote unquote best behavior? I think with Kyrie Irving, it's fair to say that though. Like, I don't think anyone's (laughs) going to think you're being, but yeah, anyway, I hope people know what I mean when I say that and just, is he going to be a distraction or is he going to just kind of keep his head down and play basketball and help the team win? Uh, That's, I mean, maybe it's not a hard question to answer. Maybe the obvious answer is just no, because he will not history has taught us that he won't be, but I, I think that we could see them sustain some of the stuff that they have done over the last couple of weeks while also getting the benefit of another high-level, high-volume shot creator 
to help improve an offense that's basically been middle of the pack so far, despite Kevin Durant doing ungodly things almost every night. But yeah, man, I think the, the Simmons thing's interesting. It's not about like just bringing him off the bench, right? Like how long can they actually keep him separated from Claxton? Or just like another center? Because I think it looked great in that Portland game, but Portland's kind of the perfect opponent mm. to play him at center against. Because they don't have any real backup centers, right? Like they play small a lot and they played small to close that game. And that sort of, I think, allowed. Yeah, he, he was Nets matched up with Justice with Winslow a lot. Yeah. And even like, you know, being matched up against Nurkic, it's like Nurkic is a big dude uh, who can and will punish you on the offensive glass. But as an interior scorer, that's uh, not the team that would really worry me. Whereas you saw, like they played him at center against Sacramento and they got fucking killed. So I'm curious to see like how sustainable that is. And then it's also like, you know, Claxton's been really good. So if they are intent on keeping those guys separate, you know, how does the minutes distribution shake out? Is it just basically an even split, like 24 minutes apiece at the center position? And is that really what they hope to be getting out of max player Ben Simmons is 24 minutes a night as a backup center? Um, you know, maybe that is the best they can hope for at this point, but I would imagine that they want to aim a little bit higher. So I'm curious to see where that goes. And I mean, I think, you know, getting getting Seth Curry back, even though he hasn't entirely looked like himself yet, has been super important because they need the shooting. And Joe Harris starting to look a little bit more like himself would go a long way toward addressing that too. But I don't know. It's like the same as it ever was with this team. Just like they lead the league in question marks. Like I have yeah. so many questions about them and rarely do I have any concrete answers ap apart from the fact that Kevin Durant is just a marvel of modern science. Yeah. I'll believe that Kyrie Irving can come back and not be a distraction or a disruption when I see it. <clears throat> but I will say we'll probably find out pretty quickly how he'll mesh with this kind of new vibe Nets team because their schedule, assuming Kyrie comes back Sunday, I believe, the schedule for once he comes back is home to Memphis, then three games in four nights through Philadelphia, Toronto, and Indiana, and then back home to play the Blazers. So the first five games of his return are looking a lot more like the kind of schedule that had them buried at two and six early. So like I said, we'll find out very quickly if he can kind of mesh with this new vibe Nets team and if they can keep this momentum going my last question for you on the nets before we move on to the kings is in a fantasy world where Kyrie actually does just come back and ball doesn't cause any more distractions throughout the season actually stays on the court him and kd stay healthy and like the nets for the most part are kind of the type of team we've seen the last couple of weeks that doesn't even mean they're a great team but you know they're defending better they're playing together more they're playing for their coach more you add Kyrie to that with the way KD's playing. Would you consider that team like a contender or would you still see them as more like, all right, they'll be better than they, you know, we thought they might be when they were two and six, but they're still not anywhere as good as they thought they could be. And it's really hard for me to say contender. Yeah. Agreed. Given all I the agree. uncertainty, you know, like I think, yeah, solid team, you know, potentially tough out in a playoff series just because, you it's always scary going up against that level of individual scoring ability and you know either KD or Kyrie or both of them could just go on a heater and almost beat you by themselves but contender feels like 
definitely a bridge too far. Uh, we, I, we'd have to see a lot more from them, I think, to anoint them as such. So, Yeah, the, the um, first step would just being like a playoff proper team because I, I think even with Kyrie back, they're, the way the East is, they're probably looking more at like a play-in mix. But anyway, we'll have a lot of time to talk about uh, Kyrie's return and what the Nets look like, I'm sure, throughout the rest of the season, given how much we've already spoken about them so far this season. Let's take a quick break, come back, and talk Kings. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, well, Fawn, when we did our Bold Predictions episode to start the season, one of your bold predictions was that the Kings would maybe not end their actual playoff drought, but would end their quote-unquote postseason play drought, if you count the play-in, and that they'd get into the West top 10 and at least play a play-in game. Now, I disagreed with that because at the time, I, who was high on the Blazers, uh, if you remember, not this high on the Blazers, but higher than most on the Blazers, thought, no, because Portland will beat them out for one of those top 10 spots. Now, very quickly, like less than a week into the season, the reason I changed my mind was that I thought both would get in because the Lakers were clearly terrible and would miss it. So I'm on board with you now and that the Kings will be a top 10 team. But in talking to you since then, I think you expect even more from this team now, and I think a lot of other people do too. I think after starting 0-4, they've now won 8 of 10 to go to 8-6. and Mm -hmm. Playing well, offense looks unstoppable. I will ask you, and we will dive into the many reasons the answer might be yes or no. Are the Sacramento Kings now, in your eyes, a Western Conference playoff team? Regardless of how they get in, I'm not saying they have to be top six. I'm just, whether they're top six to start or they get in through the play-in, are the Sacramento Kings a Western Conference playoff team to you? Hell yeah, man. All right. I still think think they're better than the Blazers. Like, I would still... I don't. I think the Blazers are better. I know you don't, but I, (laughs) like, (laughs) I would still very much expect them. Obviously, you know, so much contingent on health, but I would expect them to finish the season with a better record than Portland. I think they're a better team. I think Portland's more balanced and we can get into this, not necessarily on the Portland front, but on the set more, it's just specifically the Sacramento. We can start with their offense. Cause I think we're, we're obviously in agreement here. Their offense is incredible. Second most efficient offense in the league through a month of the season. Now, the interesting thing is that I think when I checked uh, cleaning the glass last night, maybe it hadn't updated yet, but their offensive shot profile, you know, if they shot average from the various locations they're getting their shot, would actually have them 21st in offense. Like they have the 21st most efficient shot profile because they don't really get to the rim enough. And a lot of their threes, though they take a lot, actually aren't from the corner. So I think that's suppressing the shot profile. But look, they take a lot of threes. They get out in transition a lot. A lot of uh, kind of like dribble handoff stuff, stuff off cuts, a lot of catch and shoot stuff because they do have a lot of creation, a lot of playmaking talent. They've obviously got a guy like Sabonis who can both feed off of guys like Darren Fox and Kevin Herter, but also be an offensive hub as well and, and be the linchpin, a lot of those like dribble handoff stuff. So they've got a lot going for them offensively. 
And again, if you're strictly talking offense and not about defensive limitations, you start to go through their roster and they're like 10 or 11 deep. Like Fox Herter, the rookie Keegan Murray, Harrison Barnes, who has looked pretty bad so far this year. Although I'd say the last couple of games, he started to round into form. Sabonis, Malik Monk, Damian Mitchell, Terrence Davis, Trey Lyles, Rashawn Holmes, and Chimetsi Metu. So that's like 10 or 11 deep with at least somewhat offensively capable NBA players. Again, Dude, Rashawn Holmes is out of the rotation. I mean, we talked early in the year about how right. it was just baffling how he becomes so ineffective, but it's still kind of surprising that a player with his pedigree and track record is like can't even crack that team's rotation. And it's deserved, man, because Matthew's been really good. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it's a testament to how they are pretty deep. And especially on the offensive side, they've got a lot of talent and um, a good combo of shot creation, playmaking, shooting. They've put it all together well so far under Mike Brown. So, yeah, what have you seen from their offense that makes you a believer that they offensively, at least they actually are this good. Like they are, they will have an elite offense throughout the year. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't think the shot profile is really telling the whole story there. Part of it is I'm like a little bit distrustful now of that sort of shot tracking in general, because I know there are certain arenas, especially in golden state where the scorekeeper is just like not in sync with the rest of the league when it comes to what qualifies as a rim shot versus a shot from floater range. Um, Because I watch the Kings and it certainly seems like they're applying a lot of pressure on the rim. And then I look at uh, De'Aaron Fox's shot profile and cleaning the glass has him shooting 85% at the rim, 60% from floater range. Mm. And first of all, that's just insane. Like if we're like, you take all his paint shots together and he was basically up at like 70% on all paint shots, which is preposterous. But I also think that maybe they, those percentages wouldn't look so skewed if like some of the floater range shots were being classified as rim shots. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I think the point is, yes, uh, their their shot profile says they're taking a ton of threes and not many shots at the rim, but it also says that they are by far the most effective team at finishing at the rim yeah. when they do get there. And so again, maybe that has to do with, you know, the fact that the scorekeeper at what's their arena now? The golden golden one? I think it's golden one, yeah. They shoot that beam up, that purple beam yeah, up. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this. When they win a game now in Sacramento, they shoot this like purple beam up. That lights up the sky. So it's possible that that number is like they're they're only registering shots that like strictly come inside the restricted area, which I don't think is how it's usually logged in most arenas. But I think it's also reflective of the fact that they have pristine spacing. They're a really good shooting team and they're able to leverage their shooting ability into really high value looks at the basket. And I think just in terms of their offensive connectivity, I'm really impressed by their movement, the cutting, the passing. I think they're top five, maybe uh, they're fifth or sixth, I think, in like uh, assist percentage. And it's just, I don't know. It's it, 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 like they're very hard to guard because 
obviously because of the shooting, but just because of the synergy with which they play. Like I had an example from the game against the Spurs last night where it's like really a, a pretty simple action, but I think just like the way that they time it is illustrative of the way that just being on the same page can turn a simple action into something that's basically impossible to guard. They had uh, Malik Monk basically coming off a pin down into a dribble handoff, which uh, some people call uh, Chicago action. And on the weak side, you had Davion Mitchell on the wing and Kevin Herter in the corner. Herter, who's like just shooting the cover off the ball right now, like 50% from three on more than seven attempts per game. And so as as, uh, Monk is like coming off of the dribble handoff, he gets into the middle of the floor, his defender is trailing. And so Devin Vassell, who's guarding Davion Mitchell on the wing, has to slide over and, and help at the nail. And as soon as he does that, Mitchell makes a 45 cut toward the basket. And at the exact same moment that he does, Herter lifts from the corner. And so Jeremy Sohan, who's guarding Herter in the corner, obviously goes with Herter because when the ball's in the middle of the floor, you don't want to leave, you know, like maybe the dangerous, the most dangerous spot of shooter in the league right now, uh, wide open. So he goes with Herter and there's just nobody to help on Mitchell's cut. And it's like, if they didn't time that exactly right, then the Spurs would have been able to help and recover at least to an adequate degree, right? But the fact that they had their timing so down pat meant that it all happened in the blink of an eye. Like before the Spurs knew what was going on, the Kings had a wide open layup. And it's just simple stuff like that where just being connected and being on the same page can do so much when you have, you know, the requisite skill, which I think the Kings very much do. You know, like Monk still had to make a really nice laydown pass to, to Mitchell in the dunker spot to get that basket. And like, I think his playmaking has been pretty exceptional this year and he's able to get the defender on his back in that situation. Cause the defender's playing lock and trail. Cause you don't want to go under a screen against Monk. Cause he's shooting the hell right. out of the ball as well. It's like great pickup all- for them, by the way. I mean, one of, one of the more surprising off season acquisitions, just because we thought, Hey, Monk can really help a contender. We knew the Lakers probably weren't going to be able to afford to keep him. He mm-hmm. can really help a contender. Oh, he ends up going to Sacramento. I mean, Joe Wolfine described contender, but not a contender in anyone else's eyes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I remember talking about like our favorite moves of the offseason, and that made my list. It just, yeah. I was really surprised that he only got mid level money because I, I had seen over the previous couple of years what he was able to do for an offense. And the Lakers so, yeah. didn't have his bird rights, right? That was the issue because they had only signed exactly. him to a. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so they had him on the taxpayer mid level last year. Or sorry, they had him on a minimum last year. Right. So they only could have given him the taxpayer MLE. Um and he he was obviously gonna get more than that elsewhere. So people like hating on the Lakers for not re-signing him. They that's actually there's plenty of reason to hate on the Lakers, but that's not one yeah. of them. They they couldn't actually do that. Uh but yeah, so you take all that and then you real, have... real quick, sorry, you you could argue, I mean, look, you could argue like, well, they could have signed him to the uh, like a multi-year deal or something with like a team option when they first signed him, but that's also easier to say in hindsight because no one really saw this kind of Malik Bunk breakout coming, you know, before the Lakers signed him. Yeah, I mean, they were able to sign him for a minimum because nobody else right. in the league wanted him clearly. So right. again, not something you can really blame the Lakers for, but. Um, obviously like none of that really works if they don't have the kind of premium drink stirrers 
in Fox and Sabonis making it all work, and especially Fox, who dude, Fox has been he's so good, man, <laughs> unreal. Like I, I know it's early. I know like the Kings have gotten off to good starts for, but I'm genuinely happy for a guy like Fox, who's like been in Sacramento a while now. You know is you know, committed there long-term, obviously, uh, with the big money off his rookie deal and has seen some tough times already in his young career. So I'm happy that he is now getting to be part of what seems like a really fun kind of, whether they're up and coming for the sustainable future, we'll see, but like up and coming for now team, that's just fun. And even for Mike Brown, honestly, like one of the, if you've ever talked to him or interviewed him or anything, like one of the good guys in coaching from like, not just because of the way he interacts with the media, but the way he genuinely like seems to enjoy his job and, and, doesn't take things for granted and has seen a lot around the NBA too. But no, with Fox, like I tweeted it last night. Even if you just look at last night's game, they were like plus 36 in his 30 whatever minutes. And they were minus 18 in like 11 or 12 minutes without him. Like sometimes plus minus can lie to you. But I promise you, if you watch that game, that did not. Like he has been so good and so important for them in this start. Which, to be honest, could be even better because they lost some games early that they should have won. Like, they take care of a couple of those. Like, we could be talking about like a 10 and 4 team right now. Totally. That, I mean, you, you may recall that opening night game against the Blazers that we talked about on our first episode of like yeah. the actual regular season. Yeah. The one that proved I am right. The first game of the regular season. In your Forget mind. Get what yes. happens over the 81 to come. No, but you said like that could prove to be an important game because these teams are going to be jockeying for seeding. I mean, we thought maybe and it was in, in the, Sacramento in, too. Yeah, and and the Kings led for most of that game, and they kind of couldn't close it out. The Blazers, as they've been doing pretty much all season, just finding a way to squeak out close games. Uh, I feel like that that game they lost to Brooklyn last night was the first time I can remember the season where they actually lost one of those games. Yeah. And, those, and there was a bit of, of magic flip kind of games. Yeah. I don't know if you saw all of the end of that game, but like <laughs> that game looked very much like it was going to be another, like where the hell are the Blazers finding this magic from? Because they tied the game with a few seconds left with the Nets desperately didn't want to give up the three that would tie it. I don't know why yeah, they didn't just but... foul. <laughs> and instead the Blazers find Nurkic inside Nurkic while getting fouled and falling forward, throws up a prayer and it goes off the glass and in he hits the free throw. Like, if the Blazers had come back to win that game, I might have put money on them to win the championship this season just because I would have thought there was some like angels in the outfield shit going on with like divine intervention. Yeah, I mean, except as we see with that team almost every year, they're, they're, if you want to call it luck or a clutch gene, whatever, it doesn't entirely translate to the postseason. Like they, no. I, look, Dame's always been a good closer. I, I give him credit for that, but. At the end of the day, the fact that they are playing in all of these close games and that their point differential is more indicative of like a slightly above 500 team yep. than it is the you know Western Conference leading team that they have been at points this season. I And I still think that the defense is going to regress, even though it hasn't done so thus far. And as much as I think it's like way improved from last season, um, yeah, I just... I just don't think they're as good as the Kings. <laughs> um, the thing with Fox that it like, he, he, I've always loved watching him just because he's been a thunderbolt in transition, right? But his pacing and complete mastery of the half court, like the, the how far he has come in that setting against a set defense is astonishing. And he has 
so many different things now in his scoring package where like that elbow step back going to his right or his left, like it doesn't seem to matter. He's been automatic on that shot and he's hitting step back threes. He's like setting guys up to run into screens before getting into the paint. Like I just, I'm so enthralled by what he's doing offensively right now. And the Kings will even use him as like a post-up hub. Like last night in the game that they wound up, as you said, winning by 18 points or something like that. That was a tie game with like a minute left in the third quarter. And then the three possessions that the Kings got to end that quarter. First one, Fox in the post against Josh Richardson, like no slouch as a defender, but Fox like backs him down and hits a turnaround jumper over him. Next possession down, he hits one of those step back middies at the elbow. And the possession after that, he goes back into the post. Uh, I think it was Trey Jones the second time guarding him. Backs him down. This time draws a double team and kicks it out to Monk for three. And they go into the fourth leading by seven and never came close to trailing again. So his his offensive versatility, like the way that he has grown and rounded out his skill set is amazing to me. And I think uh, it's time for him finally to be an all-star. As, as much as it's not time to make those pronouncements yet, I just have a hard time seeing how he's not going to be in that mix. I don't disagree with that. You know I disagree with them being better than the Blazers. Now, one of the things, you, when you talk about the Blazers regressing defensively, I don't disagree that they will regress defensively, but I still think they'll be decent on that end. But if we're going to talk defense, we have to talk about the Kings and the reason I don't think they'll be much better still than like a playing team that mainly, maybe takes one of those last couple of playoff spots because... I just don't think you can win enough games with a defense this bad. It's one thing if we're saying, hey, they have this elite offense and they've got this, you know, slightly below average defense or bad defense. Like their defense is atrocious. I believe they're 26th in defensive efficiency. And sometimes if you watch them, you feel like that must be a misprint because they should be worse. Like they, they are bad. It makes sense when you look at the roster. They don't have a lot of good defensive players. Now, I will say... And I know you already talked about maybe not trusting the shot profile stuff a lot just because of the way it's tracked in different arenas. While their offense is so good, despite an offensive shot profile that doesn't seem that great, <laughs> defensively, they actually have the sixth best shot profile against. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing with that is whether you kind of believe the tracking data or not, is that they're also just kind of like too easily broken down and dissected. And that even though they might, be giving up quote unquote the right kind of shots defensively I do still think there is something too but how good are the people actually defending those shots right so like don't get me wrong whether you're a bad defensive team or not talent wise of course it's better to give up mid-range shots as opposed to corner threes or shots at the rim but at the same time if you don't have the personnel to contest shots consistently to defend well in general to make it more difficult you can have a good defensive shot profile and still be torched as we're seeing the Kings do. And I don't really see how they remedy that based on the talent at hand or rather the lack of defensive talent at hand. Well, I would say, I think we can expect, I mean, their opponents are shooting 39% from three. You That'll know, come down for sure. So, so that's the one thing I would look at. I do agree with you that I don't think this is a team where you can just look at their defensive shot profile and be like, oh, they're they're doing the right things on defense and and 
they're bound to see better results because for one thing, their rim defense to me, even without looking at the numbers has been one of the worst in the league. And I don't really think that's fixable. And that's not just about Sabonis, who we know is not a great rim protector. And we can talk a little bit about how they're using him on defense, because I think it's pretty interesting and pretty smart, but it's, it's about the lack of secondary rim protection too, right? Like if you're playing Harrison Barnes at the four and it's not like you have any other, you know, particularly good answers at that position off of the bench, they like to have Sabonis come up and show at the level of the screen, especially if they're playing, you know, like against the the Warriors in a game they won. He was hedging pretty much every ball screen against Steph Curry. He was hedging ball screens against Kevin Durant. And again, I think that's smart because he actually moves his feet quite well. He can be disruptive at the point of the screen and it kind of leans into his strengths and hides his weaknesses in a way, because if you have him just in a drop, you know, he's not going to be especially effective protecting the rim. But the problem with that is just the not having enough rim protection behind him. So um, it's it, like they're kind of using him the way that Denver uses Jokic on defense, maybe like not having him be quite as aggressive uh, and come up quite as high, quite as often. But I think that's the right, the right way to use him. It's just, you know, if they had him playing next to somebody else with more, you know, weak side rim protecting chops, I would feel a lot better about their defense being able to come up a level or two. But as it stands, I feel like they're just going to continue to struggle with their rim defense. And as much as it's great that they're suppressing three point attempts, I just feel like that's going to remain an issue. But last I checked, they were second in defensive rebound rate, which I think is huge. And that again is a credit to Sabonis, who I think has played probably the best defense of his career on balance this season, because as I've mentioned with Jokic in the past, it's a really hard thing to do to be consistently coming up, you know, whether you're playing up to touch or you're just playing a shallow drop or you're all out hedging, it's hard to do that over and over again and still be able to kind of crack back and clean the defensive glass. And I think as much as it's been like a gang rebounding effort from the whole Kings team, I think he just deserves a ton of credit for being able to do that. And he, to me, has been the biggest driver of, you know, them being able to seal defensive possessions on their own glass. And I think that's huge. Like that's such an important part of just being a competent defense. They force turnovers at like a, you know, an adequate rate. Like their indicators aren't bad. It's just when you watch a lot of mid range shots, not a lot of threes. Yeah, I know. So it's like, I would like to be able to say, man, these indicators are all really good. Their defense is going to improve. And I do think it will improve. I don't think it will improve by that much just because watching them, I agree with you there are still a lot of breakdowns. You know, times when like their on-ball defender is playing an ice coverage, but the big is just in a, a standard drop, you know, in the middle of the floor. Or like, you know, they're trying to ice when it's a double ball screen and there's just like complete miscommunication uh, among the defenders about what coverage they're actually supposed to be playing. There are other times when they're like rotating on a string and Xing out and things like that and it looks good, but I would say they have just a few too many of those breakdowns, whether it's at the point of attack or on the backside with like late help rotations for me to feel comfortable saying, Oh yeah, this defense is going to get way better because their shot profile looks like it should. 
Right. Side note, remember when icing opposing pick and rolls was like, was like the thing, like Tom Thibodeau style defense? Icing, for any of our listeners who don't know, is essentially forcing, trying to force the opposing offense to the, the sideline. Yeah, it's, it's like, like if, it, if it's a side pick and roll and they want to use it to get middle, you essentially, the on-ball defender doesn't let them use the screen and instead forces them to the sideline. But that requires the big to be right. like defending that sideline so they're not just going straight to the rim. Yeah. Which that- has happened a couple times for the Kings. There was like a three-year period where NBA discourse was like really centered around like the Tom Thibodeau, like ice defense revolution. And, yeah, it and- worked really well until pull-up three-point shooting kind of... <laughs> right. I-, I won't say it rendered it obsolete because you still do see a decent amount of it, but it makes it a lot harder to be successful playing that coverage because there are too many guys who are too good yeah. at at hitting that pull up three. So that that's what kind of broke that coverage a little bit, but um, it certainly still has its utility, but it requires the on-ball defender and screen defender to be on the same page. And for all that stuff I said about the Kings offense being on the same page, I think it's been a bit of a different story on defense. And I'm not saying that can't improve, uh, but I also think, you know, you mentioned it, right? Like looking at the defensive talent on the team, I do think there's a pretty hard cap right. on how good they can be at that end of the floor. But I don't think they're going to be 26th when the season ends. You know, they might be like 20th. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I was going to say that I think for the most part, whether it's like a, a spot here or there, sure, maybe. But like I think for the most part, things will continue to track along like this for Sacramento for the entire season where... I very much can see them having a top five offense and a bottom five defense or close to it on both sides. And in the regular season, that probably balances out to about a 500 team, which I do think gets them in the play. And again, I, I've already admitted like they're better than I thought they would be. But I just still think, especially with the West compared to the way it was last year, like I think if you take this exact, the way this team is playing and you plug it into last season, you know, the West was banged up. It was a bit weaker than usual. That team can probably make a chase for a top six spot and, and getting in the playoffs proper. But I think in, you know, a healthier and more traditional, better Western Conference this season, I think a team with one of the five, six, seven at best, maybe like worst defenses in the league is going to be really hard pressed to either get in the top six or win at least one road playing game to get in. I just still think that's asking too much of a defense this bad, as great as their offense is. Yeah, I mean, you might be right. Obviously, if there is going to be something that undoes them, it is going to be their defense. But I think they can be competent enough at that end, and their offense is good enough that I do think they're going to wind up in the playoffs proper. I don't need to be doubling down on this prediction because (laughs) I feel like I'm well on my way to clearing that one. I certainly feel like I'm well on my way to clearing the 37 and a half that we laid out as the over under, even though I think most of the books had them at like 32 and a half. That's insane. I spotted you an extra five wins and I still feel like I'm going to come out ahead on that little wager of ours. So feeling great about the Kings, loving watching them. And I mostly just feel great about it because I feel like everything that I expected to happen with them has so far come to pass where they are an elite offense, a pretty bad defense playing at a super fast pace and one of the most fun teams in the league to watch. Like that was exactly what I was expecting and hoping for from this team. And it's been very cool to uh, watch it come to fruition. Yeah. With a loud fan base, a fervent fan base that has seemingly been rejuvenated, at least for now. 
All right, you want to do a little make or miss before we get out of here for the week? I suppose. (laughs) All right. If you don't know, this is how make or miss works. We alternate shooting our shots with a random take, and then we tell each other in as close to 60 seconds or less as possible whether it is a make or a woeful miss. So, going to come out of left field, I think, with this one. The video going up today on the Score YouTube uh, for our unfiltered series is, is me kind of talking about why the Lakers need to explore trading Anthony Davis and trying to come up with various scenarios that actually make sense, both for the Lakers and for a team that could potentially be trading for him. I kind of tested this with you via text. Make or miss, this deal would be agreeable from both sides. The Phoenix Suns send DeAndre Ayton two first-round picks outright and multiple pick swaps to Los Angeles for Anthony Davis. Ayton... Two firsts and two swaps. And and two swaps? Sure, yeah. Oh, man. I just don't think that they're ultimately all that serious about trading him. Under AD. AD. No, the Suns are... I mean, I think they would definitely be open to trading Aiton. How could they not be at this point? But I think as long as... LeBron is there and signaling an intent to stay there, you know, for another couple of years at least, then, I mean, I guess, okay, so the other side of this would be if they could convince LeBron that, okay, we're going to take this slight downgrade from eight, well, <laughs> we're going to take this pretty significant downgrade yeah. from AD to Aiton, but then we're going to be able to use these picks and bundle them with the picks that we already had to offer. And we're going to go and get another star. Right. That's the way that I feel like it could make sense because ultimately I do feel like they are going to have to clear this with LeBron and it's going to be a tough pill to swallow for them to downgrade in the present. But given that this season already seems to be slipping away from them a little bit, maybe they could talk him into you know, getting these extra picks in the door is really going to allow us the flexibility to make a move that will improve the roster for what's left of your Lakers career. I get that from their perspective, like a guy like LeBron will never want to admit this, but the way I see it is that like their chance to really build a true contender around LeBron in these like later stages of his career, like that ship has sailed to me. Now it's about like, okay, can you stay even competitive on some level in LeBron's last year or two there after this year while still making sure that you have some sort of like future building block or building blocks in place after he's gone, whether that means young talent or picks. And I think trading AD is the only way you can even come close to potentially satisfying like both those things, right? Where it's like, if you can turn him into a good young player that can be part of the next good Lakers team or multiple pieces, either way, that can be part of the future, but also still help LeBron compete in the next year or two for, mm-hmm. again, not compete for a title, because I think that ship sailed, but maybe compete for a playoff spot, whatever, while also, re- you know, replenishing some of the barren draft cupboard. Like, but then, I think okay, that's so the he- way they need to be thinking. Now, I don't think they will necessarily, but I think that's the way they need to be thinking right now. So they would then have to make a deal this season. Right, because once right. Westbrook's That's, once Westbrook's contract expires, they no that longer is, have that piece to use as salary filler. 
that's that is my point though in the in the video and that'll go up on unfiltered is that they got to do it this year because even if you look at AD himself and I know now we're getting well the the other three maker miss topics will be actually our short ones I promise but if you really start looking at it right like AD can become a free agent again in 2024 he'll be th- a 31 year old big man with like a long history of injury issues and durability issues whether like not saying that's a fault of his own but it is what it is. So it's like if you already start thinking big picture, it's one thing if the Lakers were actually in win-now mode based on how good they were, right? If they were actually competing for titles and you say, well, who cares about the future? We're the Lakers. We have a chance to win at least one title in the next two years with AD. We'll worry about 2024 when it gets here. But given the state the Lakers are in, they need to be thinking like about the future and realizing when 2024 comes, your options are probably overpay AD for his twilight, right? An aging big man with injury issues lose him for nothing, which I don't think they would allow to happen. And then if that, okay, if you get through that, then it's like, well, then our other options are we trade him next year for a lesser return because he'd probably be an expiring contract or you trade him now for a bigger package and not the kind of package you gave up for him, but I think a still sizable package. And you start to address both short and long-term concerns. And I just think when you start to then consider it, and it's like, to me, Phoenix is a pretty good partner because yeah. we know Aiton want like once he's able to be traded in January, I think, yes, is is he a huge downgrade from AD for sure? But I still think organizationally, you can talk yourselves into, okay, we've got this young big man who will get more of an opportunity to showcase his talents here. Maybe Aiton's more happy, gets to LA, the Suns get better and can 100% continue to compete for titles with AD there for in 2023 and 24. Like, I think it actually satisfies both sides, maybe even satisfies a potentially disgruntled eight in himself. So, yeah, I just thought as I started to think about it, like that, you know, no one's really talked about that, but I like, why not a Phoenix and LA trade that satisfies Aiton's original request to get out of there while keeping the Suns extremely competitive? Yeah, I think that would probably make the Suns the favorites in the West, thinking about it. I agree. I agree. And um, it shortens their window, but if Aiton wants to be out of there anyway, then I don't think they can be worried about that, especially when Chris Paul is going to turn 38 this season, right? Right. Like, just go for it. Yeah. Uh, I'd be on board. Okay, let's now we'll do three real make or miss ones, (laughs) actual rapid fire style. Hit me with yours. Okay, so the Boston Celtics, who. Went to the finals last year, but were ultimately undone by their very shaky offense. Now have, by far, the most efficient offense in basketball. Make or miss, Cash. Assuming full health for every other team in the league, the Celtics actually do have the best offense in basketball. I mean, I got to call it a make, just ba- like based on what we've seen. And if you think about like. I don't know, if you're talking full health and you had KD and Kyrie for 82 games, maybe some people would say, ah, like the Nets, if anything, they can have a, like the best offense. I'd still disagree with that because of some of the other roster limitations. I came into the season th- saying I, my bold predictions, I thought the Pelicans could end up with the number one offense. I still think at full health, they could. But the Celtics are just such a well-oiled and finely tuned machine with the talent to get it done that I would have to agree with this, that at this point, It'd almost be foolish to say anything else. Uh, full, every team at full health, I do think the Celtics have the best offense. Okay, I accept. No rebuttal. Hit me. <laughs> All right, I think this one is uh, a good one. Another one out of left field, but I think a good one and, and good for the rapid fire uh, format. All right, Joe Wolfond. 
If I asked you right now, do you know the answer to who the leading bench scorer in the NBA is through a month of the season? Do you think you know the answer to that? Uh, I don't think that I do off the top of my head. Is is this part of the question? or It is. It is. So the answer is Benedict Matherin. Ooh, okay. Of formerly your Indiana Pacers before yes. they were replaced by your Sacramento Kings. Matherin is averaging 19.9 points on 46, 46, 83 shooting. So in all, we've got a 20-year-old rookie averaging nearly 20 a game on 63% true shooting through his first month as a pro. So make or miss Benedict Matherin is about to pull a Ben Gordon, which is that he is going to win sixth man of the year as a rookie. Gordon did it in 2004-2005 when he averaged 15.1 points on slightly below average efficiency for a 47-win Bulls team. I think it's a miss just because I ultimately expect the Pacers to fall off of this uh, pace, for lack of a better word, and kind of sink to the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings. And I feel like that is going to lead some voters to look elsewhere, like to Malcolm Brogdon, say, who might not have the same kind of eye-popping numbers, but who at this point in his career has a little bit more balance to his game and is going to be doing it for a team that could very well wind up with the best record in basketball. So if you're asking me, will Benedict Matherin wind up being the leading bench scorer in the league? I think that's probably a make because the guy, like everything he's doing feels very sustainable. He is getting to the free throw line to like a ridiculous degree. And obviously that's a great way to pad one's scoring totals. And because of the way that he attacks the basket, his first step, his shooting ability, that all feels more or less sustainable to me. So I think he could finish the season as the leading bench scorer in the league, but I don't know that that's actually going to be rewarded with sixth man of the year despite the fact that that often is what determines who wins that award. Uh, I just don't think the Pacers are going to be good enough at the end of the day for him to earn that recognition. My last one for you, Cash. We talked a little bit about Steve Nash, him being the first NBA coach to lose his job this year. I'm looking around the league and yeah, there's some coaches on the hot seat, but also those coaches for one reason or another are fairly entrenched in their current spots. And a lot of the teams that are struggling are young teams with young coaches that presumably have a little bit more runway and longer leashes. So make or miss cash. Steve Nash will wind up being the only coach fired this season. I'm going to call it a miss just because, I mean, you know how the NBA is, but you know how pro sports are in general where even though there might be teams out there that where we think, well, they can't really fire their coach or he's got a baked in excuse or whatever the case may be there will drama will happen. Like will come up uh, some fidgety, restless owner or executive team that's, you know, got their own feet to the fire will make a rash decision. So I just think because of the nature of the NBA and pro sports in general, even though we've seen seasons before where no coaches get fired, I do think it's still asking too much for to go the rest of the way without one being fired. But I do think that 
it's interesting how, as we've talked about before, a lot of the coaches you might consider on the hot seat based on the way their teams have started probably don't end up getting fired. And the, the one that comes up the most is Doc Rivers. Embiid ends up missing a few games early. He comes back. Now James Harden is at, what, at least a month with that strained foot. Now you're starting to talk about like, well, if Harden's coming back in like December, you're almost already like talking midway point of the season. Are they really going to, uh, is a team all in on trying to win a championship this year, really going to make a coaching move midway through the season? Like it starts getting dicey. So I think it might be a make to say none of the high profile guys end up getting fired the way we thought they might. But I think it's a miss on the whole because somewhere along the lines, like I said, some restless owner or executive team that's under pressure themselves is going to make a rash decision. Yeah, like the Kings are going to go on a three-game losing streak and Vivek's going to oust Mike Brown. <laughs> I mean, we've literally seen that before where they got well, off I to know. a good start with Mike Malone coaching. And so, yeah. yeah. Boogie's ill-fated bout with meningitis just derailed that franchise and set it back for who knows how many years. But yeah, yeah man, I think it's very possible that that's it. Like we don't see another firing this year. I, honestly, I feel like Tibbs might be the more likely yeah. guy on the chopping block than Doc Rivers. Maury seems pretty attached to Rivers at this point, at least to your point for this season, because always pretty dicey to make a coaching change in the middle of a championship pursuit. But uh, I think we could see none. That might be it. Yeah, not out of the realm of possibility for sure. All right, that was a tidy 64 minutes. We're getting better. We're getting better, slowly but surely. Yeah. By the time the uh, season ends, we'll be down to 59. You got anything else to add this week, Wolfon? Blessedly, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you have a blessed weekend then. And we'll get the hell out of here. But actually, first, fan shout out. Fan shout out this week goes out to Dhruv Jane. I hope I'm pronouncing uh, the first name correct. Goes by at Titus Icarus on Twitter. He hit us up a couple weeks ago to uh, let us know that he loves the show and he's been listening since day one. We talked a little Kyrie with him as well in, in some Twitter back and forth. But anyway, Drew Jane at Titus Akaras, we appreciate you. We see you. Um, we appreciate all of our listeners and want to get you a shout out as well. So whether you have been a fan since day one or this is your first time listening, hit us up. Find us on Twitter, whether Twitter exists by the time you are listening to this or not, at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo. Email joseph.cacharo at thescore.com, joe.wolfond at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram at joe underscore 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 cash. And let us know how long you've been listening, where you listen from, what you like about the show, maybe what you don't. And we will be sure to get you a fan shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.